encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible that you brought, you can open your pew Bible. I'm going to make my attempt uh, this morning, which is our last reading in 1 Corinthians for this year in terms of the Sunday morning lectionary. I'm going to make my attempt to preach the entire book, all right? Seriously, okay, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Not exactly. I mean, it's mostly 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, but by way of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, trying to tie a bow on this whole letter. So uh, would you bow your heads and pray with me as you're opening up your Bibles? God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for these people. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. This is, this is our hope. Um, this is why we can have confidence in your scriptures is because your character is to bring order out of chaos, to bring light out of darkness, to bring speech where there is deafness, to bring power where there is weakness, to bring healing where there is brokenness. And so we count count all of our hope on you this morning. This is what we need as we open the scriptures, that you would be clearly revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for I thank you very especially for the Apostle Paul and his wisdom and his ministry and his teaching. Would you help us to understand and to love what he loves? God, I thank you uh, for this time, this opportunity. Would you be with us? Would you speak to us by your spirit? It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Don't be a dragon. It's a weird way to start a sermon, I know, but this is a common phrase in our home. We've said this for many, many years. So that phrase comes with the needed explanation. What, what, what do we mean by that? So let me describe a common scenario that may or may not happen in our home. Many of us have witnessed a child cry because another child has taken a toy from them. Physically taking a toy from someone else when they're playing with that toy is bad behavior. I think all of us would generally recognize that. And most parents try, they try to train their children to not be like that. Okay, so that's kind of a simple way of getting at what I'm about to get at. So kids, let me, let me say this to you this morning. Uh, you'll never keep a job and you won't ever have any friends if you steal things from them all the time. Okay, don't take things out of their hands. Uh, while they're playing with it. That's kind of going towards a definition, but that's not exactly what we mean by the phrase. There's another more dragonish practice that is much harder to break. It's way harder to break. We've all witnessed a child cry because another child is playing with a toy, a toy that we haven't been interested in for years, a toy that we even forgot existed So let's be more specific, not just a toy, but my toy, my toy. I was given that toy at Christmas. I opened that toy and it's been collecting dust in the corner since December 25th. But as soon as someone else picks it up, they want to play with that toy. It's my toy. It's now, now it's my toy again. It's my toy. One of two things almost always happen or both at the same time when that, when that scenario plays out. There's anger. That's my toy as they rip it out of their hands or there are tears as they run to mom or dad crying. They're playing with my toy and they won't give it back. 
And then we say, don't be a dragon. Don't be a dragon like a dragon who lays on top of all of their possessions. They don't really care about using it. They don't really care about using it. They definitely, but they definitely don't want anyone else enjoying it. Okay, so this is what we mean by the phrase, don't be a dragon. So this habit, this covetousness is maybe another way to talk about that. This dragon-like habit is a very difficult to kill. Let me give you some illustrations. As we get older and as our toys become more expensive, our dragonish hearts get more fierce, not less. Here's some examples of this don't touch my stuff, don't touch my stuff. Grown-ups look down at children fighting over squishmallows and iPads, but grown-ups are the worst. They're the worst. It's my body. It's my choice. It's my data. It's my gun. It's my country. It's another way to say this, maybe, is it's my rights. It's my rights. It's my choice, not yours. Pick your poison. It doesn't matter if you're watching cable news or YouTube. It doesn't matter if you're reading Christianity Today or your favorite conservative Anglican Facebook group. It's all kind of this liturgy of mine, 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 my rights, my stuff. So politicians and Anglican priests need to hear this a lot too. Don't be a dragon. Don't be a dragon. I've been thinking about that phrase a little bit this morning. Uh, as I've been reflecting on 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, like, like a child with his toy, like a t- child with his toy, C.S. Lewis writes, the man preoccupied with his own rights is not only a disastrous man, but a very unlovely man. That's, I think that's what we all experience. We experience it in ourselves, though, like this sort of sense of revulsion when we act like that, when we, we act like a child or a toddler. One of the central reasons our nation is so great is our Bill of Rights, even when compared to most other democracies. Now, this isn't a political sermon. Uh, trust me, though, America is unique philosophically uh, in a lot of ways in the history of the world. Uh, there is legitimate, there's a legitimate time and there's a legitimate need to argue about rights, okay? So the reason I'm saying that is because uh, I'm not saying that getting rid of all of our rights is the answer, and we'll, we'll talk about more of that, more of that this morning, um, because these kinds of questions matter. Do I have a right to be five foot tall? Can I do that? Is that an option for me, a person who's six foot four? Do I have a right to own a rocket-propelled grenade launcher? That's a good question to ask in a society. Do I have a right to become a woman? Do I have a right to happiness? C.S. Lewis has a whole essay on that where he argues, no, you don't have a right to happiness. Uh, that's, a, that's neither here nor there. But these are questions that matter. And so thinking about rights is okay. It's a legitimate and right thing to do in its proper context. And Paul spends the first 14 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 arguing for his rights. For his rights. He makes an argument. So in verse 1, you can look at the text. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. In verse 1, first, let's get a few things straight, Paul says. Not only am I free, so he's calling back to chapter 8. You remember, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me, 
Not only, not only am I free, but I'm also, I'm an apostle. More than that, I'm an apostle. I saw the risen Lord Jesus. This validates my apostolic call. I founded your church. And so even if everyone else out there doesn't recognize me as an apostle, you guys recognize me as an apostle because I started your church. This is how it begins. Verse 3. Verse 3. Then he begins his defense of his rights proper. This is where his argument begins. We've already established that I'm free in Christ to eat and drink any food. This is how he begins. I have the right, just like you, just like any Christian who's free in Christ, I have the right to take a believing wife, just like the other apostles. This is part of his argument. And Jesus' brothers even. Okay, just like the other apostles. And he says, even Peter got married. Even, even this really high up, highly esteemed apostle, even he got married. I have that right. And then he turns to a longer discussion about another right. And this is, this is where the rest of his argument goes. A right that is even more common sense and universal that he's going to argue for. His right to get paid for his ministry. Stay with me. Stay with me. Verse 6. Verse 6, okay? Apparently, Barnabas and Paul were the only apostles who decided to be bivocational ministers, or at least these are the only two he gives in the example. Not only do all the other apostles support themselves, this is his argument, and their wives, and by implication, their children, they support themselves from their labors in ministry. But here's some other examples, he says. Soldiers get paid to be soldiers. Everything that they need. Barracks, food, all of that. All of it's theirs. Farmers support themselves from their crops. They support their families from their crops. This is what farmers do. Shepherds can drink milk. They can eat cheese. They can they can. They can eat from their crop, right? They can, they can come, they can, their flock can provide for them. This is sort of a natural argument. In verse 8, he continues, this isn't just common sense wisdom. This is his argument. It isn't just common sense wisdom. It's written in God's word. Let me show you, the Apostle Paul says. God said in Deuteronomy that oxen are fed by the fields in which they're pulling the plow. As they're plowing these fields... They are feeding off what they are plowing. And that clearly, Paul says, is not written down for animals. It wasn't written down for animals in Deuteronomy, and it's true today. It's true today as well. What's true for animals and soldiers and farmers and shepherds and Jesus' brothers and all the other apostles should be even more true for me, he says. This is his argument. This is his argument about rights his rights this is natural law he says he argues from a natural law this is old testament law as well and even more importantly paul says jesus himself commanded this and this is recalling jesus's sending out of the disciples in the gospels don't take anything with you when you go because when you enter that house they will provide everything you need Okay, this is this is the principle. This is the implication. So it's a, a universal argument, a universal argument. Now, at this point, we might be tempted to say to Paul, 
He seems to be a lot of, like, my, 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 like this dragonish tendency. Don't be a dragon, Paul. Don't be a dragon. You're just arguing for your rights all the time. So uh, at this point in the service, I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. We're going to pass the offering basket so you can give more money so that I can get a raise. That's not what Paul is arguing. That's obviously not what he's arguing. Paul has made it abundantly clear that he has a right, okay? So he's, he's making a strong argument. This is a really strong argument that he has a right to be paid for ministry. This is natural. It even applies to animals. It's Old Testament. It's New Testament. Whatever argument you could bring, he could make that argument better than you, probably. So he's making this argument, and more pointedly for the Corinthians to provide for him as he serves them. So it's, it's even more pointed than just sort of a general thing. He's aiming this at the Corinthians. This is the Lord's commandment. It is his right. Verse 15, I'm not making this argument to make you feel bad, though. He's, he's not doing this to twist their arm, nor am I writing all this to inspire a love offering, okay? Okay. So that was a joke, obviously, but he's not, he's not trying to make a real good argument to get some more money from the Corinthians, but he is making an argument about his rights. So at the end of all this argument over rights, uh, the grammar of verse 15 is emphatic, okay? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of follow a couple of scholars' translations here. So I want you to imagine with me, even as you might be looking down at verse 15, we might imagine Paul, who I think is probably dictating this letter. So the, I, I, I like to imagine that Paul is getting really sort of fiery. You can imagine those debate kind of people that you know that really like to make a good argument and win that argument. So I can imagine him like a passionate debater. He's getting all worked up and he says, I would rather die than... And the grammar stops right there. Like the, it, it's a stop. And it's smoothed out a lot of in our English translations, but it's, it's as, he, as if he stops his thought. I would rather die than, well, no one, no one shall invalidate my ground for glorying, my ground for boasting. So what is he saying? Like a proud father, Paul looks at the Corinthians with godly satisfaction. Like a craftsman who delights in his completed workmanship. The Corinthians are his letter of recommendation, as he says in his second letter. Their faith and love, their very existence. Think about this, fathers and mothers, as you look upon your children. Just, just in general, just their existence, but it maybe even more when they do something awesome. Imagine that kind of feeling. That's my payment. This is his argument. That, that's my payment. God has given me the task to proclaim the good news of Christ to you. He's entrusted me with stewarding this message, this gospel, and I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied, even as I imagine that I'm in his household, I'm satisfied with the leftovers under his table. You don't have to pay me anything, Corinthians. You don't have to pay me anything. I love you. So it's an affectionate, it's fiery, it's a, it's a passionate argument. I, he's, he's putting a stamp on an argument, but it's tender, it's affectionate. There's no compulsion here. 
So before I get to sort of applying this text, let me just say, and hopefully you know this, but I want to say it clearly, arguments matter. Arguments matter. We can and we should discern truth from natural law, from the created world, from the revelation of the universe in many ways. God intends us to get information from that, to find principles from that, from oxen. We can do this from the Old Testament. We should do this from the Old Testament, from the New Testament. And the, and the tools required to discern these arguments in these different places are, there's a lot of them. You need a lot of tools, a lot of wisdom to do this. Truth is written everywhere, and we should be hungry for it. That's, that's a good thing. Pursue it. Because arguments matter. And, and particular to this argument, rights matter. Rights actually matter. We don't, we don't know any better, but trust me, living underneath our Bill of Rights is really, really good. That's why a lot of people want to move here. Voting, legislation, definitions, protecting rights matters. Defining those clearly matters. But how are we to get out of the outrage of arguments? This is, this is the space that most of us live. How do we get out of this argumentativeness, right? Where everything is a debate all the time, and really, actually, most of us don't have any information. We're just fighting over stuff. How would he get out of the vicious cycle of repeatedly taking each other's toys? Okay, this, is, this is, applies to the littlest in the room. It applies to national considerations. It applies to marriages and friendships and churches, all of it. How are we to get over the vicious cycle of running to God over and over again, crying about all of the injustices that I have to endure because that person is being so selfish all the time, God? Like a toddler. Does that sound like your prayer life a little bit? Maybe I'm just confessing here this morning. I already confessed this to my wife. So, Every best-selling book says you deserve better and nobody feels better. I've heard a lot of promises from politicians and pastors, and I'm so frustrated. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. I don't want to be in this place of argument all the time, and that's where we've been. That's where we've been. That's where Paul starts. I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Seeing the gospel produce fruit in you, that's my reward. That's my reward. I love you. I love you. Now, the text doesn't say, I love you. I'm, I'm implying that. I'm implying that, and I think there's good reasons to imply it. But love is the key. Love is the key to understanding what Paul is saying in this letter and very specifically in this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12. We've heard this before, but I'm going to translate it a little bit. Paul says, I'm a pretty smart guy. Pretty smart guy. But my knowledge is so partial. It is so partial, it's not even funny. It's not even funny. One day, I'll have a much better understanding one day I will see clearly as if I'm seeing face to face. 
But that day isn't today, Paul says. If I were going to write a paraphrase of chapter 8 and verse 2, which we heard, heard last Sunday, Paul would say this, making good arguments and winning debates puffs you up. You know how I know that? Because it puffs me up more than anyone else. It puffs me up more than anyone else. But love, let me tell you, love is the only thing I know that builds up. It's the only thing I know that builds up. It's the only thing that will remain in the end. It's no wonder that he ends the very last three verses of this letter in chapter 16. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed, cut off from God. O Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So I want to I apply this text with two key movements. Two key movements uh, to go from arguments, even good arguments, and maybe even our rights to love. How do we make that movement? How do we make that movement? So both movements... They begin in our minds, okay? So you still have to think here, okay? I'm still making an argument that's got to get in your head so that it can get out into your actions and get into your heart, okay? So think with me, follow with me. Two key movements out of arguments, out of, out of rights, out of my, my, my to love. How do we get there? The first movement is from ownership to stewardship. From ownership to stewardship, verse 17 of chapter 9. For if I, Paul says, if I preach the gospel of my own will, I have a reward. This is what I've been talking about a little bit. He's already talked about this glory, this feeling of satisfaction, this joy that he gets of seeing, of seeing this gospel take, take root in the Corinthians. If if, for if I preach the gospel of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. So in other words, Paul says, my gospel ministry is very rewarding, but even if it wasn't, even if it isn't, nothing that I'm sowing and nothing that I'm reaping is my possession. It's not mine. I have been given the responsibility to manage God's household. This is the word. It's, it's a big idea. It's all his. I, I am managing his household. This is, this is his kingdom. I am a steward in his kingdom. He owns it all. This is the idea. Uncle Screwtape, writing to demons, gives some good advice for going the other direction, from going from a stewardship mindset to an ownership mindset, okay? So this is the opposite move, and this is where we are all the time. Screwtape says this about possessive pronouns, the singular possessive pronouns. Grammar nerds, what is the singular possessive pronoun? My, okay, sorry. You're like... Why are you using grammar tests right now, okay? All right. So this is a screw tape letter um, from a demon, and he says this. The finely graded differences that run from my boots 
through to my dog, to my servant, to my wife, to my father, my master, and my country, to my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots. So my God is like my boots, the my of ownership, Screwtape says. In the same way that I own my boots, when I say my God, it's as if he's my possession. I own him. This is what the demon wants. Even in the nursery, even in the nursery, a child can be taught to be mean, to to mean by my teddy bear, not the old imagined recipient of affection to whom it stands in special relation. So it's not this tender, affectionate, uh, my teddy bear, like I love my teddy bear, but the bear I can pull to pieces if I like. That's what he means by my. That's my bear, and I can do with it what I want. I can pull it to pieces if I want. And at the other end of the scale, we have taught men to say, my God, in a sense not really different from my boots. Meaning, the God on whom I have a claim for my distinguished services and whom I exploit from the pulpit. That's a, that's a grammar argument from a demon, okay? I know that's challenging to hear out loud, okay? We can go from a, we can go e- as easily from a ownership mindset to a stewardship mindset. It's really hard to do that. It's really easy to go the other direction where we possess everything. Everything is mine, yes, even God. The demon Uncle Screwtape wants to encourage the patient to move away from love to possession. My wife is not my possession. This is his argument. This is, this is the counter to his argument. My wife, Jody, is not my possession. She's my wife. She's my wife. She's my delight. She's my cherished one. She's been given to me as a gift to guard and to keep and to love, not to possess. Not to possess. This is true of boots and teddy bears too. You guys, you guys see the reality here? Even my, the littlest things that I have, even from my childhood, are not mine. They're gifts. They're, they're, they're not mine. I'm stewards of them. Your employees, your money, your shoes, your home, everything is God's good gift to you. It's not yours. Now, does that mean that I should give up my rights and give away everything in every moment and let people walk all over me? That's a question. That's a question. If you're going to make this move, is that, is that what we're supposed to do? And I think Paul's question, his answer, and many times throughout Scripture, is no. No, it's not. Because this argument matters. Truth matters. We don't just give things up willy-nilly. We're not a doormat. So in marriage, a husband gives his body to his wife. This is the Apostle Paul's argument. And a wife gives her body to her husband. But his bigger argument is also that you're not free to give your body to another man's wife. You're not free to do that. Or to a prostitute. If you are unmarried, nobody has a right to your body. We're giving things away, but we're doing them underneath this law of the Lord. Why? 
Because your body, Paul says, is a gift given to you by God to steward. So your boots, my God, my wife, my marriage, even myself, my body is a gift to be received. It's not something to be possessed or owned by myself. Human rights are not ours because of the UN or the Bill of Rights give them to you. If, you, if, a, if a right is right, if it's true, we can show it clearly from natural law or the Old Testament or the New Testament or some combination of these because if it's true, it comes from God. It's a gift from God. If it's not true, we can throw it away. If it's not true, we can throw it away. Another way to say this is just because the government passes a law and gives you the right to do something doesn't mean you should or shouldn't do it. What does God say? If I tell you to do something that is contrary to Holy Scripture, you must disobey me. So we need to move away from this idea of possession to stewardship. Paul has been entrusted with a stewardship. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he has satisfaction one way or the other. He has been given this gift. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are his possession. He is not your possession. So this is the first way to move out of this place of always fighting all the time. To move from a place of, this is not mine, it is the Lord's. This is where I live. This is, this is a, an imaginative movement, but it affects the way we live. But the final movement, I think this is his main argument in chapter 9, is we need to move from an unselfish mind to a loving mind. We need to move from unselfishness to love. That's the argument. All this talk of giving up my rights sounds negative, doesn't it? It sounds, it sounds, like, it sounds like all the things that I have to give up. You know why? Because it is. <laughs> It's a negative argument. It's a negative argument. You're, you're giving up rights. Paul's calling us to give up rights over and over again. I get trapped into focusing on everything that I'm giving up instead of thinking about the person for whom I'm giving them up. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? Whether it's... Uh, whether I'm giving up my rights to win an argument or giving up my rights to be right or I'm getting up, giving up my rights to have justice in a situation where I feel wronged or I know for a fact that I've been wronged, I dwell on my loss, not on another person's win. I, I always do that. I always dwell on my loss. So let me try to apply this a little bit, okay? And I'm going to speak to women, but when I say this, hear, hear me, I actually fall in this first pa paragraph. I think it's mostly true of women, okay? But this is me, all right? So uh, every, every sort of generality exists and can be broken very easily, okay? So I'm in the first category, so men don't feel left out if you feel seen when I say this paragraph, okay? But I, I want to speak in general to women first. Some of us here think that unselfishness is primarily about doing something for someone else. So unselfish means doing something for someone else. If I do something for my husband, or if I serve this poor person, or if I 
give up everything for my children, if I do this, that is what it means to be unselfish. You hear, you hear about giving up over and over again. It's sort of like what I'm giving up. So another way to say it is unselfish means I give up self-care for other care. Okay, that's one way, and it's pretty common of women, but I'm right there with you ladies. I'm there all the time. Uh, I give up self-care for other care, and, I, and I, I can focus on what I'm giving up all the time. That's where I get. So let me speak to the men, okay? Categories can be broken. Let me speak to the men. Some of us here think that unselfishness is the exact opposite of that. What do I mean by that? Unselfishness is about not bothering other people at all and taking care of myself. That's what unselfish means. Unselfish means I can take care of myself and I'm not going to I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to leave other people alone. They don't have to do anything for me. I'm not a selfish person. I do it for myself. Don't mess with me and I won't mess with you. Okay. Now you can understand how that view of selfishness and the other view of selfishness might clash sometimes. You understand? Here, here's, here's the bigger problem. Unselfishness is still focused on myself. It's, it's about what I'm giving up. We need to move from that to love. What does that mean? Stop thinking about what you're giving up. Don't be so negative all the time. And start thinking about what is best for the other person. So if, if their love language is, is uh, give, them some, give them some alone time, <laughs> give them some alone time. If their love language is serve them, Go against your inclinations, which is to give them space, maybe. Do what is best for them. Do what is loving to them, not to you. Consider her or him more highly than yourself. Win them by your love. Move, move from this negative mindset of unselfishness to the positive mindset of love. What is best for my beloved? What is best for my beloved? To the Jews, the Apostle Paul says, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. He's careful, though I'm not under the law. Myself, I'm not under the law. I just entered in as they, as they are living, I, that I might win those who are under the law. This is love. You hear this? This is love. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. So he goes outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, Paul says, that I might win those outside the law. Do you hear, do you hear it? It's not about what he's giving up. It's about who he is going to. He's loving them. He's showing up on their terms. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. This is love. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Even if they're wrong, love them. Maybe especially if they're wrong. Go, go outside the camp. Go outside the law. Don't transgress the law of God. The law of Christ still rules over you. 
right? We're not going to go obey some other commandment just to try to win people. I'm not going to go live like an absolute total hooligan, but I'm going to enter on their terms. In all actions, you are bound to follow the law of Christ, but there is so much freedom in this. So much freedom in Christ because of love. Love love bears all things. It goes into all places. Stop focusing on what you're giving up all the time and love. Serve the beloved. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things, good and bad, right or wrong. Love enters, and it, and it seeks to serve the other. Love is the better way. This is the only way to life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.